Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing in our series this morning through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 17, verse 1, and we'll get started there in a moment. If you've been with us uh, the last few weeks, you'll remember that the central tension in this section of the book, if not the entire book of Matthew, has been people trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he's about. And though the disciples are beginning to understand uh, Jesus' nature and glory, they haven't yet seen his nature and his glory until right now. We pick up in Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him. This is six days after Peter's famous confession that we studied last week. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Jesus, as we um, contemplate this event and um, these words that were recorded for our benefit, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds this morning as to who you are and where you are to be found in this world. Would we be a a people who are willing to seek you uh, and to sit in your presence and to allow you uh, to do the work of opening our eyes so that we might see you all the more clearly? Would you do that among us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so if you were with us last week, you'll remember that Peter made his famous confession that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a fact that will change human history and the human trajectory forever. Then, uh, just six days later, Jesus takes his inner circle, just three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up the mountain where he is uh, transfigured or transformed before them. And if Peter's confession was shocking, then this event is shocking on an entirely different magnitude. We're told that Jesus' face shone like the sun and that his clothes became as white as the light. He is transfigured, transformed, sort of unveiled before them. They get to see his glory. And this was a unique event. We're told that though Jesus was God and was equal with God the Father, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a human being. And in addition to that, we're actually told that there was nothing in his appearance that was uniquely attractive. So while Jesus was fully God and fully man, in appearance, he simply looked like a man. He, he didn't glow. He, he didn't have a halo. He, he, didn't, uh, he just looked like an average Hebrew male from the line of Judah. And the deeper reality of his divinity was, was almost entirely hidden. It, it was veiled for most of the time. And in this extraordinary moment, you get not only the voice of God the Father confirming, hey, this is my son, but the disciples, these three, actually get to see some of Jesus' glory in this unveiled sense. And the light of God comes bursting forth. And if that isn't enough for them to take in, We're told that just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so now the disciples are experiencing something stunning, earth-shattering, just disorienting in beauty. Not only do they see Jesus' kind of true nature, the glory of Jesus being unveiled, but now Moses and Elijah are talking there with him on the mountain. And for those who are new to the story of the scriptures, uh, Elijah is a famous prophet from the Old Testament, and uh, Moses is an even better known prophet from the Old Testament who was symbolic of the law. In fact, the Old Testament law was referred to as the law of Moses. And so what you're getting, in a sense, is uh, that on the one hand, God is, is revealing Jesus, is unveiling his true nature and identity to this core group of disciples. Um, in, in the process, though, he's revealing that Jesus is, is more than a man, is more than a prophet, is actually higher than the law of Moses, 
which has governed life in Israel sort of day in and day out. And so you have Moses and Elijah there who are um, co-laborers with Jesus in a sense, but ultimately are servants of Jesus as the true Son of God. And, and so the imagery that we get of Moses and Elijah is that in a sense, all of the prophets and all of the law has been leading up to Jesus and has been leading up to the events that are going to unfold in Jerusalem, which we're told in the Gospel of Luke is actually the topic of their conversation in this moment. And so all of a sudden, the uh, disciples are caught right in the middle of this sort of beautiful, uh, otherworldly scene. It, it would feel as if you had stepped into a- another dimension. And they are sort of shell-shocked, if you will, in, in the glory of this moment. They-, they aren't even sure what to do or say. And so Peter, as he often does, he, he just starts talking He's like, I, I just have to say something. And, and, and what comes out of his mouth is this. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, you know, if you want, I, I can put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And there are a couple reasons that this might have been the thing that comes spilling out of his mouth. Uh, but ultimately, I think he's just kind of in shock And he's basking in the glory of God and he's caught up in in this moment. And it's just sort of, hey, should I like build us some some tents? I mean, we could stay here for a while. Like this is is amazing. I could like take a week or two off of work and we could just hang out right here. And, And... I like to imagine in my mind, I kind of wonder, hey, what did they do in response to that comment? Like, did, did Moses and Jesus and Elijah, like, kind of do the awkward, like, stop mid-conversation and just look over? Like, what is he? Th- or did they, like, just keep talking as if he'd never said anything at all? Like, just ignore him? I, I, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But what we are told is that while he was still speaking, God kind of speaks over him, just like, we're just going to pretend that didn't happen, right? (laughs) While he was still speaking, mid-sentence, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples are terrified. The presence of God is there in weight and in glory. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down into the ground, terrified. But Jesus came to them and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I mean, what a moment. They've... They've seen the glory. And this entire episode is just kind of loaded with Old Testament imagery. I I think of the Israelites uh, when God leads them out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, and they go to meet with God on a mountain. And what happens is that God comes to them in in a cloud and, and speaks to them there. 
But this entire episode is kind of marked from start to finish by this, this awe, almost terror of the presence of God. It's, it's too much for them. It's overwhelming. And now here again, you have some Israelites on a mountain and God is there speaking to them from a cloud. But instead of being left in fear, we're told that Jesus came to them and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And there was Jesus alone on the mountain. And immediately, Jesus begins to lead them down the mountain, out of this place of glory, so to speak, and back into the valley, back into uh, the, the, the trenches of everyday life. And on the way down, he says, hey, don't tell anyone, which begs all sorts of questions in my mind, but not this question. Listen to this response from the disciples. In response to all of the, that they've just seen, they say, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Wait, what? Like, that is not the question that I would have coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This is, this is a really odd question in my mind. But what it requires us to do is sort of, again, hit the pause button and kind of unpack through the lens of their Jewish thinking what was going on in their minds. Because the, the Jewish people held, uh, had a dearly held conviction that God was going to send them a Messiah or a redeemer or a rescuer, an anointed one who moved in the power of God, who would free them from pagan oppression and who would usher in a, a literal, physical kingdom of God on earth. That was their hope. And all of that was from the scriptures and, and good and fitting and right. But within their anticipation of the Messiah, which at this point in Israel's history is sort of reaching this fever pitch, sort of frenzied calling out for him to arrive. Within their anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah, the teachers of the law or the Bible teachers of Jesus' day were emphasizing that the prophet Elijah would return to, quote, restore all things in advance of or to pave the way for the Messiah to come. And, and this was a widely known teaching at the time that was based on a prophecy of Malachi. Okay, so Jesus is going to speak into that expectation as he responds. And Jesus replies and he says, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to them everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And to be clear, what Jesus is not saying is that Elijah will be sort of reincarnated or was reincarnated as John the Baptist. That, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that John was the one that they were waiting for, uh, that, that perhaps Malachi was prophesying about, that he would come in the spirit of Elijah 
in, in, in that vein or in that line of prophets. That he's actually, John the Baptist is actually sort of the last prophet in this line of Old Testament prophets and, and arguably the greatest as well. And he comes in, in the spirit of Elijah, so to speak, to pave the way for people to accept and follow Jesus. And so what's happening in this Elijah conversation is that the disciples have just seen the glory of God. They, they've just seen Jesus unveiled, so to speak. And, and so now they get it. Sort of all of the, the debate and doubt and skepticism about who Jesus, is he the Messiah, is he this, it all kind of went out the window. Like th this scene, it, it just couldn't be any more obvious that he is uh, who he said he is. But then, immediately, they're forced to reconcile the reality of God with all of their sort of preset expectations about how things are supposed to happen. How God, how and when and where God is supposed to show up in this situation. Because they had, they had a very vivid picture of that in their mind. And, and so now there's this tension because their clear expectations were not necessarily meshing with the reality that was in front of them. And so while the heart of the text this morning is clearly the glory of God and, and, and the unveiled glory of Jesus, I, I think sort of the subtext, in my opinion, is all of these lessons about faith, and expectation, and life with God in the here and now. And it starts with this uh, fumbling comment from Peter. Okay, so they're just going about life day to day, and then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, they're in the glory. Uh, they are having, in every sense of the word, a, a mountaintop experience. Okay? And, and there is this holy sort of reverent fear that's involved as they fall on their faces. But, but in the midst of that, I think there was this uh, inexpressible, almost intoxicating joy that, that came with this glory. And, and Peter's just in awe of what's happening. And, and the first thing out of his mouth is, Wow. This, th this is good. <laughs> like it, it, it is good for. Can we, can we stay here? Can, I mean, how long can, can we stay in this? I could build shelters. We could, we could, we could make it a two to three week stretch. I mean, this, this is amazing. Jesus, is there any way, if I can just find us some tents, can we? Can we stay here? And God knows where he's going to get tents from. They're in the middle of nowhere on a mountain. But I think there's a couple things going on loaded within Peter's sort of fumbling comment. And in part, it could be the Jewish impulse to provide housing for the glory of God. 
Because in the Jewish mind, the glory of God um, should dwell in a tent or a tabernacle or, or a temple, okay? So you've got that whole narrative going on in, in the background. But then you've got this very human impulse to cling to the mountaintop experience, to, to live in that place. You're saying, this, this is incredible. And, and if we could just get some tents, perhaps we could dwell here for weeks. Perhaps they would stay. Perhaps the glory would remain and, and we could bask in that glory. And instead, just moments later, the whole episode comes to a close. And Jesus leads the charge back down the mountain into what we would call everyday life. It's full of tension and tragedy and headache and taxes. And, and so while Peter is longing to stay in, in that place of glory on top of the mountain, you have Jesus wrapping the whole thing up and saying, we got to go down. He, he, he's almost eager to, to re-engage in everyday life, back down on the street level. And so while, while the glory of God and the unveiled glory of Jesus is clearly the center of the text this morning, I, I think in the background there's this tension of Peter wanting to cling to the mountaintop experience and Jesus leading his disciples back down into the trenches. I mean, here's God revealing himself and, and the nature of Jesus in this unprecedented way. But all of this, the way that it happens, it is fascinating. So if you take a step back for a moment and think about the big picture, God, in the person of Jesus, has been with them all along. Okay, in, in his veiled glory, so to speak. He's been with the disciples day in and day out. And so without knowing it, the disciples have touched God's hands. They've looked into God's eyes. He, he's, he's been with them, but there was nothing in his appearance that would have made that obvious or have drawn them to Jesus. There was no glow there was no halo, there was no bright lights, it was just the average looking male from the line of Judah thing. But God was with them all along, through everything, in the trenches, veiled, hidden, God is with them. Then, Peter has this moment, which we studied last week, in which he uh, not where he sees this sort of blinding light, but rather where he recognizes in his heart, in, in this moment of clarity, wait a second, this is God. Like, like God has been with us this whole time. He's been hidden in plain sight and we just didn't recognize him. Whoa, Jesus, you're you're the son of God. A, a revelation of the heart. 
And then they continue in everyday life, day in and day out in the mundane. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they're almost caught off guard with this mountaintop experience. And all of a sudden, they're in the glory of God. And, and, and they're soaked in his presence and, and his light, and they never want to leave. This is where, please, please let us stay. Can, can, I, can I make us some tents? We can live here. And Jesus is probably thinking, Peter, you don't have any tents, and it's starting to snow. Like, we, we, can't, we can't live here. All of this is temporary. And if Peter could think clearly, he'd know that was the case. But Peter isn't thinking with his head in this moment. He's thinking with his heart. And his heart knows that more than anything, I long to be in this place. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to live. Please, Jesus, can we stay here with you in this place. And, and I think many of us have had these experiences before. Not of like literally seeing Jesus transfigured in, in person. But I think many of us have had these mountaintop experiences with God. Or, or these incredible moments with the Holy Spirit. And in those moments, everything else just fades away. And it's you and God and glory. Have you ever had one of those moments before? And, and it might be associated with a unique event, like the, the birth of a child or a miraculous healing, a powerful time of prayer, you know, a, a weekend retreat or conference. Um, but other times, it just hits you out of nowhere. It's just a normal Sunday gathering. It's just a normal Tuesday afternoon in the office. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God just fills that place, or at least becomes your felt reality. And just like that, you're on the mountain, so to speak. You're in His glory. For the first year of the church plant, uh, up until quite recently, I was working multiple jobs. And one of my favorite kind of jobs that I did on the side, and still do a, a bit, is, was substitute teaching. And so I would uh, substitute teaching usually like two days a week, and then the rest of my days were kind of devoted to church planting. Um, and I didn't like subbing in high schools. I really didn't. Um, I actually preferred like kindergartners, somewhere around there. Um, and, but every once in a while, I would, I would sub in a high school. And I remember this one time on, on this particular Thursday, whatever it was, uh, I was pretending to be a high school science teacher. Uh, biology, to, to be precise. And so, and, and I always tried to be, um, in whatever job I was doing, I always tried to be kind of prayerful and just attentive uh, to God throughout the day. And, and so to go in with a prayerful attitude wasn't unusual. Uh, but on this particular day, something uh, unusual happened in that I walked into the classroom and it just hit me. It, it, it was like walking into a cloud. It was like the glory of God 
was, was just there, just, like, just flooding my being. And it was this overwhelming, sort of intoxicating experience. Some of you have probably read uh, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, hey, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And, and I had read that before, and you kind of read it and think, huh, like, that's intriguing. Is Paul saying that those are comparable experiences? And, and I kid you not, in, in this instance, it was. I, I was just overwhelmed by the glory of God. I was intoxicated. I was just like, the joy was just like flowing over me. And, and I kid you not, it lasted all day. Okay, so here I am pretending to be a biology teacher or whatever. And, and, and I'm like Peter on the mountaintop. Like, I don't even know what I'm saying. Like, I'm doing my job. I think I'm doing my job. But like, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm like on the, ver- like class after class is coming and going. And I'm like on the verge of laughter just like bursting with joy. It was like nothing in the world could possibly bother me. And, and at one point, one of the high schoolers, real sweet, really discreet, kind of pulled me aside. And she said, uh, hey, are you high? <laughs> oh, and if I had been like thinking on my feet, I probably would have said, no, I'm just filled with the Spirit. But who knows how that would have gone. They probably would have asked for some or whatever. Uh, but all I could say was like, no, like I'm not, I'm not high. And then just like floated my way back to the front of the classroom. I'm just like, I'm out of it. I'm like hanging by a thread, right? The whole day and throughout the day, I kept having this recurring thought and it was, God, can I just live here? It, can, I, can I just hold on to this experience? Can this be my felt reality day in and day out? God, if I could just live in this place of your presence and your love and your glory overwhelming my being, how easy life would be, how, how beautiful, how effortless. God, can I, can I live here? And despite my best efforts, I couldn't hold on to that moment. I I couldn't bottle up the Spirit. And and by the time I was was gathering up my things and and leaving the classroom, it it was starting to fade. And and by the time I got in the car and, and arrived home, it was like back to normal. Just like, Welcome back to reality. But more than anything, I had wanted so desperately to to live on that mountaintop, to to live in that place of glory, or or to figure out, God, how do do I put that to a formula? How, how, How do I replicate that? How do I relive that? How do I sell that to high school students? No, I'm kidding. Uh, But... That was really bad. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, I in no way intend to sell the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
but, but you see what I'm saying. I'm distracting myself. You see what I'm saying? I, I just wanted to, to live on that mountain. And yet, God seems to have designed life to be far more valley than mountaintop. Would you agree? Way more street level and far less transfiguration than I would prefer. And so too often my problem is Peter's problem. And that's that I only recognize God on the mountaintop. And I spend too much of my time wishing that I was back on that mountain or or wishing that God could just be transfigured before my eyes. And, and, And sometimes it feels like I just can't see God at all. Unless he's transfigured before me, unless he overwhelms my senses. But I think one of the journeys of our discipleship is learning to see God in the valleys. Because the curious thing about God is that he's hidden himself in plain sight. And so he's designed life to be mostly valley and that his desire is that we would encounter him in the valleys in all of his veiled glory. In the midst of the divorce proceedings, in, in the midst of, in the aftermath of the diagnosis, in the midst of your third layoff this year. And we say, God, bring me more mountains. Like, bring me back to that place where you just overwhelm my senses. And I think too often God is saying, open your eyes. I'm with you right here in this valley. I've always been here with you. Or in the words uh, of uh, Teresa, God walks among the pots and pans, amongst the crying babies, <laughs> amongst the seemingly mundane of everyday life. And Jesus walks on water, and then he tells his disciples, hey guys, don't tell anyone. And Peter figures out who he is at Caesarea Philippi. And he says, hey, keep that to yourself. And and then he's transfigured before them on a mountaintop. And he sees their glory. And he says, hey, don't let anybody know about that. And we want to see the unveiled presence of God. And instead, we get the God who's hidden in plain sight. And we want to hear God's voice thundering from a cloud on the mountaintop. And instead, what we get is a subtle whisper at 7 a.m. when you're up early and you don't want to be, but you're reading the scriptures, cup of coffee in hand, and there he's whispering to you about the day, about next year, about what's ahead. And and there's absolutely nothing wrong 
in my opinion, with seeking the unveiled presence of God, with, with actively seeking more of the Spirit, of, of hungering and thirsting even for those mountaintop experiences. But if we don't understand the way that God works, uh, then we're prone to make one of several mistakes. And the first is that we, like the disciples, will make up our own theories and our own assumptions as to when and where God should move and how he should show up in our lives. And if we aren't careful, then we will actually blind ourselves to the God who's right in front of our eyes. Wait, Jesus is the Messiah? Oh, sorry man. We, we, we didn't really take you seriously. We didn't think that you could be the Messiah because we've been waiting for Elijah to come first. We have all these expectations. No, if God is real, if God cares about me, he will show up in this way and no other. And in the process, we seem to miss. We're looking for the thundering voice. We're looking for the transfiguration. We're looking for him to meet our preset expectations. We're looking for him to give us the American dream. And then I'll know. That's how I'll know that God is real. That's how I'll know that God is with me. And if we set up too many expectations, we actually miss the God of the ordinary. The God of the mundane. The God of, of the Tuesday mornings in the office. We miss an opportunity to cultivate a constant awareness of God's presence with us. And like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking the unveiled presence of God. I mean, we have to be careful that we don't idolize the mountaintop experiences or even value those experiences over God himself. Okay, so there, there's some, some pitfalls that we need to avoid. But generally speaking, I think there's way more of God and way more of the Spirit available to us than we really stop to acknowledge. We, we just assume, oh, this is, supposed to ha this is how life's supposed to be. There's, there's only this much of God available. And, and so there's a sense in which I would say we do want to seek mountaintop experiences. We do want to approach God with expectation, whether it's it, it, before work starts on a Tuesday morning or whether it's a, a weekend away in the woods or, or a weekend in the city at a conference or whatever it is, and in, in the Sunday gatherings. We want to seek him with expectation and the hope uh, that we will encounter his, his unveiled presence so to speak. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with approaching God and saying, God, we want to see your glory. I think there are too few people approaching God that way. My chief concern is not that we would become overly focused on the mountaintop experiences, though that's possible, my chief concern is that we would miss God in the valleys. So by all means, ask and seek and pray and contemplate and receive from God on the mountaintop with expectation. But don't miss him in the valleys. When the alarm goes off uh, Monday morning, when you're in the midst of 
the divorce proceedings that you got dragged to, when the diagnosis finally comes back from the oncologist, in the midst of the pots and pans, when you're changing your eighth diaper of the day and it's not even noon, remember that he is Emmanuel, God with us, and that while we, like Peter, long to ascend that mountain and to stay and live in that place, Jesus was eager to come down that mountain to be with us. And there is no valley low enough, and there is no pit deep enough, that he is not deeper still. So may you seek him on the mountain and may you find him in the valleys until that day when we at last get to see him face to face in all of his unveiled glory for all eternity. Let's pray.